Hello, I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the world of defence and foreign affairs. This week, the UK cuts aid to Yemen. Could a humanitarian catastrophe turn into a security nightmare? They know that America and Britain are heavily involved, and the effect of all of that, of course, is to radicalise tens of thousands of young Yemeni men. A report in the US says America must invest in autonomous weapons. Is it too late to stop the rise of the so-called killer robots? Whether or not you use the excuse that, oh, our competitors might suddenly get ahead of us, that's not a sufficient excuse for me. We should take the moral high ground and defend against it. And 30 years on, scientists suggest a new cause for the illnesses collectively known as Gulf War Syndrome. I take 18 different medications every day, and that's for life. I'd just like somebody to say this is really why. Yemen, already home to the world's worst humanitarian catastrophe, is now said to stand on the brink of a famine worse than any seen around the world in decades. Britain continues to support the Saudi-led military offensive against Houthi rebels, even as the US steps back. This week, the UN appealed to rich nations to give billions to the aid operation there, but the UK instead announced it would halve its contribution. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres says the international response to the crisis in Yemen is just not good enough. The race is on. If we want to prevent hunger and starvation from taking millions of lives, reducing aid is a death sentence for entire families. With the war raging... Yemen's children are paying the price. More than 20 million Yemenis need humanitarian assistance and protection with women and children among the hardest hit. The UK had previously promised to give 0.7% of its national income in aid, but is cutting that commitment. The Prime Minister came under pressure on the issue in the Commons. Current uh, straitened circumstances, I'm sure the people of this country understand, mean that temporarily we must uh, reduce uh, aid spending. But that does not obscure the fact, Mr Speaker, that when it comes to our duty to the people of Yemen, we continue to step up to the plate. Uh, a, a contribution of £214 million pounds, uh, for this financial year. There are very few other countries in the world, Mr Speaker, that have such a record, that are setting such an example in spending and supporting uh, the people of Yemen. While this year the government is giving more than 200 million, next year it has offered less than 90 million. One leading critic of the move is former International Development Secretary Andrew Mitchell. He's been to Yemen and told me what he saw there. I visited a hospital which had previously been run by Médecins Sans Frontières and MSF has had to withdraw from that hospital. But I visited a malnutrition ward, which is always one of the most desperate and saddest places you can visit in the developing world, where you meet and see starving children, often with their terrified mothers. And uh, I went into this ward, and the thing I'll never forget is that the doctor who was in charge said, you'll be pleased to know that uh, British taxpayers are funding a lot of the wonderful work we are doing here. And so when the government made their announcement of a 50% cut in the teeth of a famine, which means that 4 million children, at least in Yemen, will continue the slow, agonising process of starving to death. I thought of the work that the British government and the British taxpayer had done and the way it showed what a generous and decent country we are to help some of the most malnourished and worst-off children anywhere in the world. 
your thoughts on the matter and your feelings on the matter are evident. Ministers seem to get a rough ride when this came up in the Commons. Do you think there's enough opposition to reverse this decision? Well, the first rule of politics is to be able to count. And uh, I spent a certain amount of time over the last couple of months talking to colleagues. And I think the government will have a very difficult task indeed in getting it through the House of Commons because members of parliament are very conscious that they stood on a promise to the poorest in the world. They stood on a promise to stand by the 0.7, and they will be very reluctant to break that promise. The government says cuts to international aid are temporary because the domestic economic crisis triggered by the pandemic. Isn't that unavoidable in the current circumstances? Can it be understandable? Well, the, the, the cut was announced. It was the only cut that was announced rather extraordinarily in what was a very good comprehensive spending review last November, leading many of us to conclude it was a political rather than an economic uh, decision. And as far as the temporary nature is concerned, uh, the government wouldn't be going through all this pain for just four billion pounds for one year, which after all is 1% of the debt that we have incurred in coping with the COVID crisis. So I think that it is fanciful to believe that government ministers are going to wake up one day and decide that the economic position is so good that they want to increase by 0.2% our foreign direct assistance. So I regard uh, with some scepticism the suggestion that this is a proposed temporary measure. So do you think the UK is beginning to cut Yemen loose? I think that uh, Parliament needs to make a decision. You know, we are a democracy. Brexit was supposed to be about ensuring that Parliament got more power, not executive fiat. And I think the important thing is to put it to the House of Commons. Let the House of Commons decide whether it's right to break this promise. Um, and if the House of Commons says that it isn't, then that will mean more money for Yemen, I hope, and more money for other desperate causes, where Britain has been a tremendous leader in development around the world, really moving the dial. And I very much hope the House of Commons will decide that that is more important than making this narrow and politically shabby cut. You mentioned global Britain. Britain has used aid as a form of soft power, boosting its influence. Are you worried that this will begin to affect its standing in the world? Yes, of course. And it's already affecting the standing because our friends and neighbours cannot understand what we are doing and the new Biden administration has made it very clear that they are surprised at this step and of course it comes when Britain is chairing the G7 group of nations so it's not a very welcome uh, sign of what global uh, Britain means and remember that the exercise of soft power is incredibly important because it's highly effective Britain is 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 a world leading exponent of that and after all the defense secretary in America uh, secretary Mattis when, by, when, when Donald Trump was cutting aid, he said, uh, remember, Mr. President, that whenever you cut aid, I have to order more ammunition. So the importance of soft power and its effectiveness in tackling conflict and deterring conflict is enormous. You make your arguments for humanitarian reasons. Is there a geopolitical reason? Is there a security implication for the UK that means it should have a vested interest for those reasons in the future of Yemen? Well, certainly in the future of Yemen, but in my view, the British uh, establishment and the British government have made a terrible mistake because I think they think that our security and our economic benefits are tied up in being alongside Saudi Arabia and being part of the Saudi coalition. I think that the reverse is true. I think, first of all, in terms of the economy and arms sales, uh, this is a war which the Saudis cannot win. It's draining their economy. Uh, and I think the pressure for an arms embargo is growing all the time. And in terms of security, it's having the reverse effect because 
the Yemeni people know, as I discovered on my visit, from where these bombs come. And they know that America and Britain are heavily involved. And the effect of all of that, of course, is to radicalize tens of thousands of young Yemeni men who know from where the death and destruction is coming. Conservative MP Andrew Mitchell there. Well, joining me today is Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. And Michael, what do you make of Andrew Mitchell's argument that this risks radicalising a generation who will, to some extent, blame Britain for the chaos that they're enduring in Yemen? The sheer enormity of the civil war in Yemen and the fact that Britain and America have backed Saudi Arabia and the Emiratis, uh, fighting against the Houthi rebels backed by Iran, that we've got ourselves involved in this conflict, albeit one remove. Uh, that stays around and that, that, as it were, taints the atmosphere and the views of the outside world of the United States and Britain. Al-Qaeda have never gone away and Al-Qaeda have been pretty strong in the south of Yemen um, and have used it as a base and are still there. So um, I think Andrew Mitchell's right. Um, not only that, this, that there will be radicalization uh, coming from Yemen in, in future years, I think that's a given, but also that it's hard to make any sense of Britain's current standing on aid policy. As he said, I mean, the Prime Minister claimed at question time this week it was a temporary cut. Well, nobody believes that because we, we already have a temporary cut because our GDP has collapsed in, during the coronavirus crisis. So the amount we give to aid as a proportion of our G, GNI, as it actually is, gross national income, that in any case, falls by about 4 billion without us doing anything. So to actually cut it from 0.7 to 0.5 of our GNI is absolutely the intention to make this a permanent cut. And it doesn't sit with any of the other things we say we want to do in the world. It, it, it's very hard to believe who the, or to understand who this is designed to please other than the very right of the right wing of the Conservative Party. And on top of that, some will contrast the amount the UK is willing to give in aid to Yemen with the revenue generated through the sale of weapons and other support to Saudi Arabia's military offensive there. Yes, and again, Britain risks being out on its own here because the United States has already indicated that it's not going to go along with Saudi Arabia on this and is already... Um, thinking again about its policy and has, has stopped all weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. We've kept ours on um, and more and more bad publicity is coming out about Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the crown prince, de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. He's running hit squads, kill, killer squads around the world. That's now pretty clear. There's a big movement against, against him personally and Saudi Arabia in general in the United States, even if not in the White House. And so we risk finding ourselves out on a limb supporting Saudi Arabia in the way that we did two or three years ago when the conditions elsewhere are changing. And remember that this war is being driven by uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis on the one hand, who are two of the richest states in the Middle East, by Iran on the other side, who is the biggest villain in this whole thing. And this war is being conducted um, in the poorest state in the Middle East, Yemen. The two poorest states in the, in the whole region are Syria and Yemen. And the Iranians are deeply involved in both of those states, destabilizing them, making everyone's lives a misery. And the Saudis and the Emiratis have got pulled into it. They're foolish. They don't really know what they're doing. It's a grotesque spectacle in world politics. And we, unfortunately, are implicated in it in ways that we never thought would happen three or four years ago. Michael, stay with us. 30 years ago this week, Britain, the US and other Western powers were celebrating the successful end of the Gulf War. Having liberated Kuwait from Iraqi occupation, troops headed home. But soon, many would start to complain of a bewildering array of illnesses which became known as Gulf War Syndrome. Well, now researchers say they may have solved the mystery of what caused it. Paul Osborne takes up the story. 
It was Britain's biggest single deployment since the Second World War. More than 50,000 troops sent to the desert after Iraqi forces invaded Kuwait. One of the biggest fears was that Saddam Hussein could use chemical or biological weapons against them. We knew that Saddam Hussein had this capability of uh, nuclear and biological and chemical weapons. Lieutenant Colonel Danny Wilde was in the Gulf with the 14th 20th King Sassars. We knew he was not afraid to use it because he'd used it in his war against Iran. Preparing to counter the threat was a key part of planning for the war. Brigadier Patrick Cordingly commanded 7th Armoured Brigade. Chemical warfare was not unknown to us because we had done MBC training through all our military careers. But suddenly when it was for real, it became rather frightening. Later on in the Gulf, it became a real issue when we knew not only that we had to deal with anthrax, but we had to deal with bubonic plague. So troops receive vaccinations, a lot of vaccinations. Lieutenant Colonel Tim Purbrick was a British tank troop leader. Before we even left Germany, um, our arms were like pincushions because of the amount of jabs that we'd, we'd had, all in one day, many of them, and some people got quite sick as a result of, of them. When we were out there, we had further jabs for anthrax, and we took a tablet called NAPS, a nerve agent pre-treatment set. Jabs for yellow fever, tetanus, typhoid, cholera and more were administered. Danny Wilde again. I was assured, like many, that... It was safe, it had been tested, and it was only for our own good, so the uh, NAPS tablets and the atropine bring it on. But in the end, there were no chemical or biological attacks. Once the war was over, some US troops began reporting unusual illnesses. Soon afterwards, veterans from the UK, Denmark, Australia and Canada started to complain of the same problems. I'd only been back six weeks or so, and serious muscle pains again. My hands were really hurting and cramping up. Gulf War veteran Kerry Fuller. I asked continually, could, could this be anything to do with my service in the Gulf and the, you know, the inoculations and uh, vaccinations? And the answer was always, no, the, the, there's nothing, nothing that says that it, that it can be. Uh, and again, have a couple of paracetamol, crack on. Former Army combat medic Kevin Doughty was going down with a host of mysterious illnesses too. I was still fairly young, you know, and a guy my age shouldn't be going down with all this kind of stuff. Went on a medical assessment programme, the Gulf Medical Assessment Programme, down at St Thomas's Hospital in London. Had all the battery of tests, all the bloods done, scarring on my kidneys, scarring on my liver, nerve damage in my left ankle, arthritis in both knees, both hips. So chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. The veterans believed that exposure to multiple vaccines, pesticides and fumes from burning oil wells could all be possible causes. Kerry Fuller again. It was while in hospital, they were trying to work out what happened because I said, right, you, not only have you suffered that, but also, you, you know, you've gone through multi-organ failure with your heart, your brain and your kidneys as well. It's as if at some stage in your past, you've your body's been exposed to a massive amount of poisons. And it was my wife who turned around and said, well, Kerry was a Gulf War veteran. The MOD has always said there was no scientific evidence that the vaccines and tablets given to British troops would have had any adverse health effects. Now a study at the University of Portsmouth has landed on an alternative theory. The troops were exposed to the nerve agent sarin. In January 1991, US troops destroyed stockpiles of Iraqi nerve agents. The MOD's always said British troops were too far away to have been affected. 
Randall Parrish, professor of isotope geology at Portsmouth University, isn't so sure. There was a big explosive plume. They rise quite high in the atmosphere and then they're blown downwind. Within 24, 48 hours, this plume moved around. Obviously, it became more dispersed, but it then settled at lower altitudes and nerve agent alarms were going off repeatedly in many of the bases in which the veterans, whether it be US, UK, whatever, they're all mixed up in the bases. In a, in a sort of sense of low-level exposure, they were all exposed. The MOD says it has no plans for any further studies into the effects of the first Gulf War on veterans, leaving people like Kerry Fuller still wondering exactly what caused the problems that they've lived with ever since. The Gulf War did change me. I came back different. Um, right where before I was really outgoing and whatever, I became withdrawn, sullen. I take 18 different medications in various mixtures every day, and that's for life. I'd just like somebody to say this is really why. The Royal British Legion believes that up to 33,000 veterans of the first Gulf War are living with symptoms linked to their service. And worldwide, it's estimated one in three of the three quarters of a million troops involved in the liberation of Kuwait subsequently suffered some of the symptoms that came to be known collectively as Gulf War Syndrome. Paul Osborne reporting there. This is Zitrap. For years, many Western nations have debated the ethics of autonomous weapons capable of selecting and firing on targets without direct human intervention. Some have even suggested an international treaty is needed to ban so-called killer robots. But this week, a commission looking at the issue for the White House and the US Congress instead said the US must boost the pursuit of AI-enabled weapons. Otherwise, it warned America risks being overtaken by nations like China and Russia, who, it's claimed, may well ignore any bans on using them. Robert Work is the commission's vice chair. Our armed forces' competitive military technical advantage could be lost within the next decade if we do not accelerate the adoption of AI and other advanced technologies across their missions. Our major military rivals are really all in on military AI applications. Defending against AI-capable adversaries without employing AI is an invitation to disaster. Well, Professor Noel Sharkey is Emeritus Professor of Artificial Intelligence and Robotics at the University of Sheffield. He's also a member of a group called the Campaign to Stop Killer Robots. And when I spoke to him earlier, he told me he still thinks there's a way to stop the use of autonomous weapons on the battlefield. The commission is, is largely comprised of former CEOs of big tech companies who stand to make an awful lot of money from a pursuit of AI in the military. And now I'm, I'm an AI professor and I'm very passionate about the use of AI. So it's nothing to do with that. And I'm not against the uh, military using AI in a number of domains. Uh, I'm, I'm part of a campaign that's simply against the selection of targets and violent force against them automatically by a machine. So a machine selecting the target itself. Up to that point, autonomy or movement is not so important. Uh, but we believe, and I'm speaking myself as an AI scientist, but the UN has had letters from thousands and thousands of the most senior scientists 
in, in my field. These systems could not comply with the laws of war. The report says the US has to act because rivals like China and Russia will do so. I mean, isn't it true, though, if they're going to have this capability, that Western nations need to be able to defend themselves against it? That could be said to be true, yes. But I think a, t a total ban could stop that. And the problem there is that it's slightly hypocritical because the United States started this arms race back in the early 2000s. But now everybody else has caught up that the UN, China has, has backed our proposal for a complete ban. Their view is that they will continue developing the weapons until such times as a treaty has been negotiated. So there's still a possibility that this capability is going to be developed. If China says it's going to continue developing it until a treaty is signed, there will be a capability out there which uh, potential enemy targets will have to defend against. But it's untested and we don't have defence against it so much. I mean, the defence is part of the problem because you're talking about AI systems that can work completely on their own. And the report talks about human accountability and human control. The, the, oddly, the report acknowledges all of the problems that we have, but we don't have to worry about human accountability. We don't have to worry about uh, human control because the US will always morally make sure that it works properly and the other nations might not. So that seems to me a very good case for banning it. Once you unleash these things, they're deciding on their own targets. Humans don't have time to intervene. And if my swarm meets swarm in another country, it would be devastation before humans could do anything about it whatsoever. And so I think that in itself is so worrying for international security, much more worrying than the possibility of other nations developing them, because the defence itself is part of the problem. It's not just simply about defending yourself against it. When you know that it could lead to a lot more civilians dying, I mean, they try to make the case in the report that these weapons could target much more accurately than humans. And I acknowledge that they might well be able to do that. They're very highly skilled you know, machines. But it's not the matter of them targeting. It's a matter of who they target. And that's the problem. You might very accurately kill a lot of civilians because these machines are not capable of identifying military from non-military people, combatants from non-combatants. And we're mostly fighting in insurgent warfares now. And they're talking about putting them on borders. And it could lead to such a lot of civilian casualties. And I think it's against the, the values of the entire Western world to use these weapons and whether or not you, you use the excuse that, oh, our competitors might, might suddenly get ahead of us, that's not a sufficient excuse for me. We should take the moral high ground and defend against it. Professor Noel Sharkey speaking to me earlier. Professor Michael Clark is with me. Uh, Michael, this idea that you have to develop autonomous weapons because your rivals are doing it sounds an awful lot like the justification for the nuclear arms race in the 60s and 70s. Yes, it does. And sadly, I, I think this is the original sin of, of technology, which is that any technology which is applied and exists in a civilian world 
will have some sort of military application. Some aspects of all technologies might be weaponized to some advantage. And that's exactly what we're seeing, because our own world is full of automation, of AI, artificial intelligence and robotics. And as these come together in this digitized world, of course, what can be used to create safe driving along smart motorways of the future so that none of us actually control the car, the car works out where it goes itself and it learns as it goes and it learns from each journey how to do it more efficiently. That's where we are with it in, in motoring. All of that can be applied to the military as well. And remember that most of our existing weapon systems, or many of them, have already got quite a lot of aut autonomous elements. So we're talking here about a, a progression, but as Noel Sharkey says, it's, it's almost now a step change into a different type of warfare, and we are on the cusp of that, sadly. More than 20 million people have so far received their first coronavirus vaccine in the UK. Ministers have set out their plans to offer a first jab to every adult by the summer, and the military still playing a big role in that operation. RAF Nursing Officer Squadron Leader Emma Daffy-Moore has been helping out this week, giving COVID vaccines to people in Barry in South Wales. They're delighted. They're so grateful. It's, it's quite incredible how pleased the population are to, to be vaccinated. A lot of them are actually ex-military who have moved to Wales, and so they come forward and you hear a lot of stories about them being in the military previously. A lot of nurses and medical people in the military are very glad to be involved in this. Um, and even though it's taking us away from our core roles of what we do day to day, I think it's a very important thing to be involved in. Meanwhile, the rollout continues across British military communities around the world. In Cyprus, a frontline military nurse was the first to receive the jab, as Sean Greszczek reports. Yeah, we're ready. Making history in front of the cameras, it was nurse Corporal Hannah Mortimer who was the first to receive the vaccine on the British bases in Cyprus as the rollout gets underway. It felt really good, yeah, I won't lie. Um, like it, like start hopefully life getting back to normal again. Um, it also feels good that if myself were ever to get coronavirus, I'm less likely to become really unwell from it. Personnel and their families are receiving the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Enough has been sent in the first phase for a thousand people. In total, if everyone who is offered has the vaccine on the British bases, they'll need enough for 5,000 people in total. Group Captain Sonia Fithian is Commander Medical, British Forces Cyprus. This is hugely significant in our response against COVID. An awful lot of people um, in the UK and on the island have been involved in ensuring that we receive the vaccine. Um, and I'm massively grateful for all of the help that we've received so far. Commander British Forces Cyprus is Major General Rob Thompson. So it is an important moment. The vaccination arriving, uh, the vaccines being here, shows people there really is light at the end of the tunnel and that we're heading towards a more normal existence through 2021. Why haven't they just shipped all of them out here? Well, there's a set of priorities that have been set out by the UK, and that is absolutely right. We look after those who are most vulnerable. We look after those who have been brilliant at caring for us medically, and we then are doing it on an age basis, because this vaccine is about reducing the impact of the disease, making it less likely that you'll have to go to hospital. And so it is important that we do it in priorities, and those priorities have driven uh, the vaccination programme. And will people who are on operations here, um, will, will they be prioritised? Are they in that group? So the prioritisation is by your medical category or your age, not by where you are on operations. And that's been clear across the whole of defence. So we're no different. So if you're 24 and on operation shader, you wait to phase two. If you are a medic on op shader or on op tosca, you will get it up front in phase one. 
So it's, it's completely medically based? So it is based on the priorities that have been set out by the medical authorities back in the UK. We're no different to the UK. We're in step with the UK. And interestingly, that also allows us to do something very similar to the programme and priorities set here in the Republic of Cyprus. Tell us about the, the timescale as to, you know, when you estimate everyone to have had the vaccine who wants it in BFC. So, I mean, it's very difficult to commit absolutely uh, to a particular date, but look at what's happening in the UK. The Prime Minister has been very clear about his ambition to get adults uh, vaccinated. Uh, I think July is what he has said, and so we would aim to be in line with the UK. As phase one of the rollout begins in earnest, the advice to all remains that everyone should continue to keep strictly to the rules on wearing masks and social distancing. Sean Greshchak with that report from Cyprus. Now, before we go, you may remember a few months ago, the army published a healthy eating cookbook for soldiers. Now it's staging what it's called a comprehensive review of food offered in barracks. One newspaper says it means pies and pasties could be swapped for salads for soldiers. Uh, Michael Clark, if an army marches on its stomach, how far will it get on a salad? Well, it won't want to go too far for the, for the army that I, I know. I mean, the point is, you know, the, the army reflects the society from which people, the boys and girls, are drawn. And so they, they bring with them, when they join the army, the, the eating preferences and habits from their own communities and societies, which is where the, the pies and pasties comes from in quite a lot of cases. You know, the principle is give the boys and girls what they want. You know, give them plenty of what they want. So if if their attitude is that we actually we ought to eat a few more salads, we'll make sure there are plenty of them there. But you certainly won't win any friends by putting on salads and taking off the pasties and the chips and all of the curries that they really love. And you say about them um, they bring their, their eating habits from their communities. Those behind the review say that today's soldier is savvy and smarter about what they're eating though. Well, that might be true. I mean, I think they would like it to be true for the future because, remember, we're looking here now, when the integrated review is seen at the end of this month, at what I call a new model army, just like Cromwell's new model army. And this new model army will have in it, they hope, a different category of person. They may well bring with them different preferences and, if who knows, more refined palates. <laughs> you know what? I think there'll always be a place for comfort food, won't there? I'm sure there will. There is, there is for me, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> me too. That's it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to all of my guests. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.